This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number nine of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and with me here today is another really awesome guest. He is the creator of HackingWithSwift.com and the author of many Swift books. Most recently, he released Dive into SpriteKit and a new initiative called the Swift Community Awards. It's Paul Hudson. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. How are things going? Well, I've been busy doing Swift, unsurprisingly. I've just finished a three day-long online workshops, which means I've done about 20 hours of non-stop talking about Swift. I am totally psyched about Swift. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> so now you are super excited for another 45 minutes of talking about Swift. Yes, but then I get a vacation starting tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, it's important to take some time off. And I usually do the same. I do like these bursts, you know, like sprints, and I do like a lot of work. And then I relax for a few days and I do another, another sprint. Well, it's important, otherwise I forget my kids' names, you know? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that would be, be pretty bad. So uh, we've been in touch online, you know, back and forth for a while on Twitter and stuff like that. But we just recently met at the Pragma conference in Italy a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So uh, you've been busy, it sounds like, since then as well. I am always busy. That's my only default mode. Yeah, yeah, me too. You know, I like to keep busy. I like to keep, keep things going. So you mentioned you just did your first online workshop. Uh, what was that like? Like what, what got you started with workshopping? I get, you know, I get so many emails from readers saying, you know, they love my books, but they'd love more information about X or Y or Z or whatever. Uh, I get so many emails. I've been sort of sucking them up slowly, building them up, keeping a little library of requests and ideas and so forth. And eventually I thought I'll give it a try. And there's a brilliant platform called Crowdcast who do, importantly, most of the work for me. Um, so I just basically write six to eight hours of Swift material and then present it online. And uh, it's worked well. Now, I've, I've done workshops before, face-to-face -face ones, and they've been great fun and actually, in some respects, easier because you can kind of look folks in the eyes and say, well, you know, she doesn't really get it or he's a bit confused or whatever. Um, so online's different to that, but you still get the great opportunity to get folks excited about Swift, and that's just a real privilege. It's a kind of similar reason to why I started doing this podcast. It was like I was getting all these questions and feedback from people, and I thought, uh, why not just invite a bunch of awesome people from the community and answer some questions and try to interact with the community in a, in a new way. Yeah, and the feedback's been brilliant for you and, and for me, so obviously it's working. Yeah, it seems like people like the format and, you know, it's one of these things I think where, you know, you're doing these workshops and people doing other kinds of things. It's like the more we can have, the more types of material and the more formats we can have in the community, the better it is because different people like different things and learn in different ways. So I think it's just great to get more like diversity in terms of what content is out there. Yeah, and it's not a zero-sum game. You know, if I, if I win, someone else doesn't have to lose. We can all succeed together and build the community together, and that works really well, I think. Oh, yeah, totally. Absolutely. Cool. So that's a new thing, like the workshops, and it sounds like it's off to a good start. Uh, but your main thing is Hacking with Swift, both the website, uh, hackingwithswift.com, and your series of books, which you've done quite a number of books now, right? I just hit a dozen. So wow, 12. that's yeah. a lot. I'm flying. You are a serial author, my friend. 
I hold those are just the ones I have in Swift. You know, I've got print books beforehand on Linux and uh, PHP and uh, React and other stuff. But these, those are the Swift, Swift books as twelve. Yeah, wow. And it's mostly like the Swift books is the thing you're focusing on right now, right? The other things are like things you did in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Swift's definitely the uh, number one thing right now. So what got you started with uh, with hacking with Swift? Like, where did this initiative come from? And this is your full-time thing that you do now. Uh, a lot of folks get surprised when they say, you know, wow, you, you do books full-time. Yeah, I'm one of those things called an author. I literally write books <laughs> full-time. They do exist. <laughs> they do exist. They still exist. You know, books actually still exist. Um, but my first degree was in computing science. You know, it's not a big surprise to me. And I'm, I'm one of those terrible bores that got into computing at a young age and didn't deviate from that path for a long time. But after working as a full-time coder out of university, I actually switched careers entirely and became a journalist for a computer magazine. Oh, wow. It was still a Linux magazine, right? So it's still extremely technical, but it forced me to broaden my horizons and think about reading and writing and readers and so forth. Um, and, you know, while I worked on journalism, I, I kept programming. It's always been a hobby for me. So after eight years, the company I worked for decided they wanted to make iOS apps. And they turned to the only person in the company who had experience making them, which was me. So I switched back to the IT department of the company full time and built this large team of folks around me to build apps for the company. And that was when I wrote Hacking the Swift in my spare time because, you know, I'd worked in the magazine for so long. It gave me a real drive to, uh, to write and to teach and the goal of any good magazine is to inform, to entertain, and inspire. And writing in my spare time gave me the chance to do that for an area I really had grown to love, which is, of course, iOS development. So that's where it came from, and it kind of just grew from there. Wow, that's really cool. It's always exciting for me to talk to people like yourself and others who have, you know, kind of taken this thing that we both do to the next level, because I'm kind of in the same phase as you were back then that you just described. I'm doing... Swift by Sundell in my spare time. I'm doing, you know, this podcast. I'm doing the weekly blog posts. And it's so much fun. And just like you say, uh, being able to, you know, share some knowledge and start conversations and also just, you know, hear from so many people who are, you know, pinging me on Twitter and emailing me and all these kind of things. It's it's really inspiring. Yeah, that, that's, that is the best. And it really, really keeps you going when you get an email or a tweet from someone saying, I saw this thing and it really inspired me or I loved it, whatever. And, you know, I actually, I have this thing called the uh, Swift Frequent Flyer Club. And what it means is inside every book you buy from me is a single word. And if you type that word into the website with all your other book words, it unlocks bonus content. It's kind of <laughs> taken from uh, Amiga Games uh, copy protection from years ago, like in the 90s, you know. Um, and I get emails from people saying, you know, I, I just bought the new Spriket book. I've got all your books now. How come there's no new bonus content yet? And <laughs> at first, I was quite surprised. I, I didn't think everyone would buy all 12 or, you know, all 11 or 10 or in the past, all nine. Um, but they do. They keep coming back for more. And for me, that's quite frankly the highest praise I can ask for is people like my work so much already. They just keep on coming back for more and more and more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why we do what we do is, uh, you know, why we create these kind of content because, you know, people like, people seem to like it and we get feedback and that just, you know, motivates us to keep going, uh, which is, which is really, really awesome. That's really cool. I love that idea of like being inspired by these like old, old school game passwords to unlock new, new content. Oh yeah. And that's what I found again and again with my, my work is that things I did five years ago, 10 years ago, I thought, oh, I'll just try that. And it didn't work too well at the time. 
I can now almost reuse the ideas been in my head for a long time, or in some, actually times the code's been in my hard drive for a very long time. <laughs> I've been able to reuse it and repurpose it later on to be useful in a way I hadn't even planned originally. So uh, I think it's inspirational to me to realize that the things I've failed at in the past are now coming back into, oh, that's a good idea, that would work again today even better than before, and uh, reapply it. So there's, there's no such thing as a real failure, I think. No, I mean, as long as you learn from it, right? And you got to try so many different things and see what sticks, what you like, you know, what kind of formats you like, and just experiment and iterate. And I mean, that's true both for programming and also for things like creating content and, you know, what you work with and all these kind of things. And I think that's like one of the keys to keep being, you know, keep being inspired and also keep enjoying what you do is to constantly try to reinvent things. Yeah, definitely. Great. So, um, so you've been doing these things for a while, and now recently you launched this new initiative called the Swift Community Awards. So, tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what's the what's the motivation behind that, and what is it all about? So, I launched it less than a month ago or so. But um, you know, the fundamental goal here—it's been sitting in my head for a while. I want to try and raise the profile of people and projects that really make our community, the Swift community. Excellent. And that means raising the profiles of great events or great toolkits or great newsletters or, or whatever. And uh, so far it's done really well. The, the shortlist opens tomorrow as we record this. It's Monday it opens. And we've had over 700 nominations. So it's great to see so many people keen to show their appreciation for things they love. Because it's nice to, be able to you know, give back and say, I do love this thing and recommend it. And I hope eventually I'll be able to publish a shortlist uh, tomorrow and say, uh, by all means, look through all these amazing things. You know, I'm finding... You know, so for say for newsletters, you know, fair enough, iOS Dev Weekly has got a lot of votes, uh, Swift Weekly Brief's got a lot of votes, so has iOS Goodies, I haven't even heard of iOS Goodies, or Swift Web Weekly. And these are things I'm learning about, or for podcasts, obviously this one was in there quite a lot, there you go, awesome. and Swift Un Unwrapped, which is Jesse Squires' podcast, and um, also Under the Radar, or Fatal Error, or Swift Coders, you know, things that not everyone's heard of. So actually, I, I really hope that people say, oh yeah, iOS Dev Weekly, I've heard of that, or whatever. But they'll see these other ones they haven't heard of, give them a try, and they'll just spread the love and grow everybody. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, there are so many uh, things that I will see, which, you know, you haven't seen before. And like you say, there are so many of these well-known newsletters and, and content, but there is so much out there and so many great hidden gems. And if you can get, like, a nice overview of what other people are recommending, well, that's awesome. All right. So what do you say? Should we start diving into our questions and topics? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, so as you know, this show is all about answering questions and discussing topics submitted by the audience. And this has been super important to me ever since the very beginning to make the show as close to the community as possible. So I wanna extend a big thanks to all of you who are sending in questions, feedback, and topics. I really appreciate it, and you are really what keeps the show going. So for this episode, we have some really great topics to talk about. So let's dive right in. Uh, the first one comes from Paul Weichart, who wants to ask you specifically uh, what you are doing a little bit around your workshops and your website. So he says, I would love to know which learning methods Paul encountered to work best for his readers and workshop participants. So. What kind of things have you gathered over the years of what works when it comes to, you know, teaching Swift or spreading knowledge and introducing new concepts? So, as you might imagine, I get asked this quite a lot, um, and 
I always start by sort of prefixing my answer by saying there is no single way that works for everyone. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that up front regularly because uh, it's so easy to try a tutorial like mine and get frustrated and imagine that you just suck. Um, but that isn't the case. You know, maybe my style or someone else's style just isn't for you. So experiment. That's the first thing I always tell folks. If you find a tutorial that isn't right for you, just move on because there's so many in nowadays. Um, my own style is the same across all my books. I want you to learn about iOS or macOS or watchOS or server-side Swift or whatever by actually making real apps with the technology. So I split up the whole system into a series of projects, each of which teach three or four new techniques for your platform, while also giving you the chance to practice what you've used before. And I chose that style because it works for me personally. And I'm, my entire business is based around the hope that there are enough people out there like me, people who learn like doing. Uh, so if you want to learn with my approach, you've got to be prepared to code, which means follow all the projects, try all the homework. And if you've got the guidebook, follow the challenges in there too. Really get stuck in, otherwise it's you'll learn nothing or it won't stick very well. And this approach is shamelessly ripped off from my personal hero, Kathy Sierra, who wrote a series of books for O'Reilly or edited a series of books for O'Reilly called uh, Heads First. And sadly, she was hounded off the internet by some trolls quite a while ago now. Um, but her approach is fantastic. She said, listen, you want to imagine um, you're being faced with a tiger. <laughs> you know, it gets your brain ticking and alive and you're thinking and you're looking for escape routes or whatever. Um, you've got to present that level of excitement to people to get them really having this information stick in their brain. And that means find something interesting. For me, it means find a project that's really a real useful, valuable project that they can then go ahead and modify afterwards and ship or enhance or tweak or put into source control for a portfolio or whatever, something real. And that's my personal approach. And that seems to work well for most of my readers. And the ones it doesn't work for, I usually find out later, they say, oh, I, I, I whizzed through 40 projects in two weeks. Um, well, okay, <laughs> I don't think you took the time <laughs> to really internalize what you're reading about, to read the review notes, to try the challenges and so forth, because that's just too fast. It's like 40 projects, you know, 1,300 pages in two, two weeks, you know, not possible. Yeah, that's an insane pace. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And I always also try to keep uh, all the code samples that I share both on Twitter and on my blog uh, to be real life code samples. Like I don't use foo and bar. I don't use A, B and C. Oh, great. And I think this is super important because it contextualizes the code a little bit more. Like you can see it's a real thing. Like you're talking about a data loader or a user loader or what have you. Uh, it makes it a little bit easier to understand and to see more like the practicalities of it. Uh, but it also makes it a little bit easier to see how you can imply, apply it to your own code. And you don't have to like try to decipher this like mystical, uh, you know, cipher uh, in order to understand what the point is. Like the point becomes a lot more clear, I feel. Yeah. Um, I feel like whenever someone sends me like, because sometimes people send me uh, snippets and they ask me like, how do I do this in Swift? Or what do you think about this? And it's all like foo bar and A, B, and C. And I, I literally have to spend like 15 minutes trying to understand yeah. that code sample. So yeah, that, that would be my biggest tip as well is to keep it real, as they say. But I'm inter interestingly, I, I personally, you know, my, I don't want to bore you, but my master's degree is in, in classics. So it's Latin and Greek because languages have been an interest to me for, for a long time. Linguistics, the process of learning and internalizing language. I spent a long time looking at how folks study um, French or Spanish or Italian or Greek or Chinese or Japanese or whatever, 
And some of those same techniques actually apply perfectly well to coding as well. I mean, one of the most popular linguistic techniques right now is SRS, the spaced repetition system, where you introduce a topic and then say, okay, uh, how do you say to call in Spanish? You say, oh, llamar or whatever. Um, and then you forget about it for a few minutes and ask them again, how do you say to call in Spanish? And then repeat it. And then you wait 15 minutes, then 30 minutes, then, uh, you know, two hours, three hours, a day, a week. And basically, by, by forcing them to recall it over increasing periods of time, it sinks in deeper. And with my projects, I'll say, let's do table views. And then we won't do them again for a project or two, then do it again, then wait a bit longer, then do it again. So you're kind of coming back to it after a short break and you'll have forgotten some bits and that's totally okay. We all forget some bits, but when you relearn it, it becomes even deeper in your brain. So you can rip off these ideas from actual traditional language learning, uh, you know, human language learning and put them into computer techniques too. Yeah, it's kind of sounds a little bit like how Duolingo works, you know, how it makes you go back and repeat the same things, uh, especially if, you know, a certain period of time has passed in between. It does. I think they actually open source their framework, if I remember correctly. Oh, wow. I need to check think. that out. Oh, that mm. sounds pretty cool. Nice. So that's a nice little non-technical warm-up. So now let's dive in and get <laughs> technical. Stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to start by talking about the never-ending debate of should you use storyboards or zibs or do your UI in code? So we have two questions here. One comes from Dave King, and he asks, or he says that, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on storyboards versus zibs when working in large teams. And then we have also Anmol, uh, who is asking, is it good to make a whole iOS app using code or not? Or should you use storyboards? So mm. I thought we could combine these two into kind of one, because it feels like it's kind of the same topic, like, how should you structure your layout and your UI code? Should you use storyboards or not? This is a perennial problem, right? And it's a bit like uh, uh, it used to be the case that people would argue whether butter or margarine is more healthy for you. It just keeps going round and round. <laughs> no one's quite sure is the answer. Um, I'm not going to pretend that using storyboards is a great experience in large teams. But realistically, it's no longer optional. You know, all new apps in Xcode 9 use storyboards. Uh, it's no longer a checkbox anymore. And Apple continues to add features that make storyboards more powerful than Zibs. So for example, uh, um, adding peak and pop support, for example, is uh, trivial in a storyboard, but impossible in a Zib. Or used to be the case, and it still is the case, that uh, uh, static cells and table views, again, impossible in Zibs and just trivial to do in storyboards. So I think the discussion of Zibs versus storyboards is done regardless of big team or small team. And it's come down on new storyboards because Apple's pushed it so hard. Uh, and I think I only really ever see Zibs being used in older projects where storyboards hadn't seen much adoption yet at the time. Yeah, it, you know, it all depends. Like always, it's the boring answer. <laughs> but it depends on really what you need from your UI code and how your team is structured. So... Storyboards are great because you know they are, they're they're visual. You know you can edit them easily, but they're really hard to merge. And working on a hard team or working on a big team, uh, it can be really difficult to just deal with them and to kind of know who's working on what and you know merge all these different changes in together. Um, so there's definitely pros and cons. Uh, me personally, I I kind of find Interface Builder a little bit confusing and. I don't, I'm not going to say that it's bad or anything. I'm not going to recommend that people don't use it, but I personally make all my UI in code. And I guess that's because, you know, I'm a super programmer and I just, that's the way I think about things. I think about them in code. 
but I definitely think there's a lot of tools and techniques you can use to make your uh, UI code still be dynamic and easy to work with. So one thing I use a lot, for example, is playgrounds, uh, where you still get that nice visual thing where you can code and you can see the things appear more or less in real time, depends if Xcode wants to or not. Um, but I still have everything in code. Uh, but that's kind of just my personal preference. I've used storyboards and zips in the past and for things like Mac development where it really is hard not to use storyboards, I definitely use them there. So I think it depends on what you're working on and kind of what you're looking for. Or, or watch OS where you have no choice but to use them. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. You haven't got, it's no longer optional. They're forced down that route. The thing is storyboards don't have to be that bad. You know, Apple could say, listen, a storyboard is a collection of zips. And so, you know, a storyboard lets you visualize the zips side by side like a normal storyboard, but the, the actual content of each view control is still saved individually, which would make merging significantly easier. They haven't done that. They've put all the XML into one single file, which is a terrible move and has made, I you say, merging very difficult. But it could get better. They've, they've just chosen not to let it happen, which is a shame. Uh, the discussion about code is more interesting, I think, and I, I'm probably more pragmatic than you here because I, I tend to use both based on the need Right. I, I wouldn't say, again, it's like, it's not that, you know, I think that storyboards or interface builder is bad. It's just that I guess just my go-to uh, solution has always been to code UI. And for me, like, it doesn't slow me down. It doesn't, I, I never feel, oh, I wish I could see this UI in a storyboard right now. Uh, if I do, I just jump into a playground. Yeah, but how do you handle things like storyboard previews? Because that's a real powerful feature of interface builder. Is a bit to say, listen, I want to see iPad Pro in split view and iPhone 10 and iPhone SE at the same time. Show me how this view controller looks. And that means you can change a single constraint and see them all update immediately. So it makes it really, really fast to do turnarounds because let's face it, right now, the you know, 12.9 inch iPad Pro is huge down to an iPhone little baby SE device plus the notch in the 10. There's never been a harder time to do layouts for uh, iOS developers. Yeah, I guess what I tend to do is to uh, structure things in a way that makes it more predictable. So I use a lot of like best practices when it comes to setting your UI up. So I make everything, like if I use auto layout, which I use most of the time these days, uh, or if I just do frames, which I do sometimes where I think that makes more sense or it's easier to understand in a more complex UI maybe. Um, I just structure everything based on like one single anchor point so that I have the UI kind of grow out of that point and be very dynamic in terms of like the, you know, dimensions and the width and the height. And what that means um, is that usually it's not a big problem running on multiple devices because it will adapt very nicely. But of course, there are always edge cases and there are always these more advanced layouts where, yeah, sometimes probably it would have been better in a zip or a storyboard um, and I guess this is where I need to kind of start adopting that workflow in those cases. So yeah, I think for me, I try to usually just pick the tool that I'm most comfortable with and I feel like solves that particular problem. And that's a big thing. That's what matters most of you. If you're comfortable, you'll do it faster. Um, you know, I had, I had one project where I shipped the same code, same app, uh, across all iPad sizes, including split view, slide over, and tvOS. Uh, 4K and regular and all iPhone sizes in portrait and landscape. So it took an extraordinary number of auto layout constraints to do that. And it, I would 
probably have pulled my hair out if I was doing that in code because <laughs> I wouldn't be able to see quickly across all these devices what it looked like. Yeah. And actually, to be fair, in code, there are some great wrappers like uh, Stevia or Easy Peasy or Snapkit. That means doing auto layout in code isn't laborious anymore. They make it very simple and clean. Yeah, and even with the new layout anchor API, uh, or it's not super new anymore, but no. you know, if you're supporting a couple of iOS versions back, it is new, you know, new and yeah. shiny. It's like iOS 8, I think. So, um, yeah, it makes it so much easier just to reason about these things because you're like, yeah, you're anchoring the bottom of this view to the top of that view. You have this margin. Um, and I try really hard not to hard code any metrics anywhere, which makes it so much easier to adopt, you know, new screen sizes and things like that. So, yeah, I think, but in general, I would say that, you know, the things we're talking about here when it comes to like, you know, all layout constraints and visualizing them and everything, I think just in terms of, what tool you use, I think the most important thing here is to how you set up your layouts in general. If you make it like extremely tailored to one device, then it's going to be very hard to, whether you do it in code or zips, to kind of move over to a new device. So I think the, the core thing here is that no matter which technology you use, like try to make things as dynamic as possible when it comes to the margins and the, you know, all the metrics that you have in your view. Yeah, and actually stack views are really great for that. Yeah, they're amazing. They're really Be able great. to track things like, you know, trait collection to change and just switch the axis so you can use slide over and split view on iPad in seconds. It's just fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think we're going to get reach a definitive answer here on this show right now. Uh, the answer is yes, that's your answer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it depends on what you're optimizing for. Uh, again, I share your experiences in a, in a big team. Um, questionable whether storyboards is worth it. But if you're a smaller team or if that's your personal preference, um, if that's the way you would like to work, then that's great. So pick the tools that suit your team and yourself the best. Next up, we're going to talk a little bit about game development, which is uh, really exciting. Uh, it's something that I've been doing for quite a while, and you also just uh, released a book about SpriteKit. Great book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is a topic from Hans Ospina, and his topic is Paul just published his book on SpriteKit, and you, John, just published Imagine Engine. So a quick discussions, discussion on do's and don'ts when it comes to approaching 2D game frameworks might be nice. So I thought we could start with a little bit of background. So first off, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book you just released? Because I think it's a really interesting concept that you came up with. Yeah, so dive into SpriteKit. Uh, it was a real blast to write. Uh, it teaches SpriteKit using an approach you might have seen in Choose Your Own Adventure books from when you were a kid. It basically says, okay, uh, we're going to make a project here. Should it be a project about uh, a space rocket flying through space or a submarine in the sea or whatever? And you make a choice. And as you choose, the game forks. And that choice reflects through the rest of the book. And then it continues. You ask another choice. Should they collect coins? Should they avoid rocks or whatever? And again, it forks. So you kind of you learn what you want to learn while customizing your game. And there's about 210 possible variations through the book. And uh, I actually shipped a companion app with it for the first time because of the forking nature. And it's pretty cool because uh, it's an iPad app you can build and run on your iPad, and it shows you on the left the book text you're reading in a split view, and on the right it shows you the current code you should see after finishing this chapter. So you can always see what you're what you're doing right now. You can make the same choices in the book. You know, oh, I, don't, I want to use core motion to move the player, or I want to tap and drag them around. And there's a play button which builds and runs the code at that point in the project. So you can see what it should look like right on your device. Awesome. 
And uh, yeah, so I just published uh, or I just open sourced uh, Imagine Engine, which is a brand new game engine that I've been working on on and off for the past two years. So I'm really excited about open sourcing this. Uh, I actually open sourced it right on stage at the Pragma conference. It was great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I was kind of building up to that for quite a while. And I was like thinking that would be a cool thing to do to kind of just open source it right there. But your approach is, your approach is unique too, isn't it? Because you're not using SpriteKit or Metal. I'm not. I'm using Core Animation, which mm. uh, a lot of people have been very curious about. Like, why did I pick Core Animation when there's you know SpriteKit, which is clearly by Apple like marketed as this is the 2D game framework for for Apple's platforms, and then there's Metal, which is the you know really high performance, low level graphics API for Apple's platforms. So why didn't I pick either of those? Well. It kind of comes down to um, what I was looking for in terms of performance and in terms of um, how to be able to structure games with uh, a large number of objects. So the way metal works, if we just start in that end, is that it's close to the metal, as you could imagine from the name. Uh, it's extremely low level. Basically, it's just a rendering context into the GPU. So what you do is that you write shaders, which is basically programs that execute on the GPU. So you will draw all the pixels and everything uh, kind of manually, and you have a lot of power. So since you're working on such a low level with such low overhead, you can draw things really, really eff efficiently and really, really quickly. So this is great if you're building like a really, you know, intense um, graphics application, or if you're building like a really sophisticated 3D game. Um, for Imagine Engine, I felt a little bit like I'm one person. Um, I, I'm not a rendering uh, programming expert um, where I think my biggest strength lies in is kind of like in API design and how I work with games. So I felt like diving too deep into metal would really not give me much in terms of what I could achieve because chances are that Apple has optimized core animation because it works right on top of metal uh, yeah. better than what I could do as a single person. Um, and then we have the opposite end, which is SpriteKit, where the reason I started the Imagine Engine project is even, you know, back in the day when I was using SpriteKit a lot, and I still love SpriteKit, I think it's awesome. And I definitely don't want to make like Imagine Engine as like Imagine Engine versus SpriteKit and SpriteKit must lose for Imagine Engine to win. Definitely not. Uh, they're just optimized for different things. So with SpriteKit, when I was building like these more like large scale games with lots of objects and lots of characters, I felt that I was like kind of hitting the limits of SpriteKit in terms of how many objects I could add. And I felt I, I did a lot of experimentation, a lot of, of benchmarking, and I found that by using basically CA layers, like adding everything in core animation, I could actually achieve a better performance. Right. So um, that's kind of how it all came down to be based on core animation. And then what I did was to just experiment a lot and try to find an API that I would like to use when building games, like something that felt intuitive to me. So, you know, an event system and things like that that I felt uh, was kind of, you know, the mental model that I would like when it comes to building games. So that's basically what I did. And presumably it's the case that if, if someone were to write a game against the Imagine Engine, they could effectively, you could switch, you could change it later on, presumably. You could port it to Metal or to SpriteKit or to SceneKit, whatever you want to do later on. And any game written against 
Imagine Engine should presumably be fine. Sure. I mean, it doesn't on the on the API level. It doesn't have anything to do with core animation. Like, there's no CA layer exposed on the API level. Right. So the the internals of the of the framework or of the engine could definitely be changed to use Metal or whatever in the future, and your game code would not have to be updated at all. And do you get shaders or not? Because it says CI filter can do shader, can't it? Uh, right. So there's currently no shader support, and that's something that I want to add in the future. The kind of games I tend to make are not really using shaders much uh, because I tend to make more like pixel art, like yeah. 2D games uh, with just like textures, not that many effects. I've done some game in the games in the past that have used sh shaders kind of lightly for things like water effects and things like that. Mm. But it's, so it's definitely something that will come to the engine eventually. And hopefully I can get some help from people in the community to implement that. Uh, but yeah, it's not there yet. But CI filter should be easy to add because you know you can just pop them right into a CA layer. I guess my tips would be um, experiment a lot. Like use a lot of different because there are so many engines out there. There's Cocos yeah. 2D. There's Unity. There's now Imagine Engine. There's SpriteKit. There's a lot. Uh, make make prototypes. Uh, see what fits the game you want to build. If you want to build something that is like cross-platform then Unity might be a great choice for that. If you want to build something which is like extremely simple and uses only Apple's stuff, you know, no dependencies, then SpriteKit might be great for that. Uh, Cocos 2D has been around for a long time. It has a lot of, you know, tooling and things like that around it. So there are so many different engines out there and they all make different trade-offs like always. Uh, so for this, I would just encourage, you know, prototype, try things out and see what you like. I think, as you say, there's a lot out there and a lot of it's free nowadays, which is absolutely amazing because, you know, when I was younger, I had nothing like that available to me. You know, my idea of uh, hacking around was, uh, if you remember Duke Nukem 3D had the build engine? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. That was a fantastic game engine because you could hack it to pieces. Uh, so you could just go in and modify whatever you want to do and play around. You could build your own levels and, and do some really advanced stuff with it, despite being a very simple engine made by actually a, a kid at the time. It's quite remarkable. Yeah. Um, but, you know, nowadays we have things like Unity, and Unity is extraordinary. I mean, I, I, we, at my office a couple of years ago, we had a hack day, and it was a 48-hour hack day of learn Unity in day one and make something in day two. Oh, that's we'd, awesome. We'd all gone in completely cold to Unity, uh, and it's a C-sharp-based system using its own custom GUI and event system. Uh, and, I, you know, it has a, an asset store, just packed, stocked to the guild with stuff. So it, after two days, one of which was learning, I made a ridiculous Diablo clone with like 60 bucks of asset store content. It was insane. You know, Unity is so very powerful. Of course, it looks beautiful out of the box. All the latest technologies are supported out of the box and uh, it's completely cross-platform. So uh, there's a, a, you're spoiled for choice right now. Um, but as you said, there are other options. And I think actually trying a few gives you an idea of what works for you personally yeah and uh you know i i, I years ago i used a uh, framework called xna from microsoft oh yeah awesome i've used that a lot too oh it's brilliant it's so powerful it's an xbox 360 uh framework you, know, you only get one of the three cpus so it's not like unlimited power but they do vast amounts of the work for you for loading content and models and so forth and let you get games out there very quickly and of course it doesn't exist anymore sadly so you move on to other stuff but the ideas you get from that and the way of uh, the cool things it does for you, you take somewhere else and you start using those there and you get ideas from Unity and use those somewhere else. Um, so you get lots of ideas and put them together rather than just getting hooked on one platform and getting specialized there because 
If you do that, you're locked on their platform, you're on their treadmill. So if they don't, you know, add support for the iPhone 10 notch quickly enough for you, you're just kind of stuck. You can't go anywhere. Whereas you have a range of skills, a range of knowledge to apply in various places, it multiplies your valuableness, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people that want to get into game development, it's something that they're going to do in their spare time, like yeah. like you and me, basically. And, you know, with that, it means that you have the freedom to just try out things. Like if you are sitting at home on a rainy Thursday afternoon and you want to, you know, do something fun, then try out Unity, like try a tutorial, you know, try something on in SpriteKit and just see what you like, what fits your personal style. Because making games is, of course, you know, a super creative endeavor. So you don't want the tools to not feel right for you. It's kind of like, you know, trying different kinds of shoes and seeing which ones you like. So moving on now to the next uh, question, uh, which comes from Pawan Sharma. And he asks, what do you think of, Swi of the Swift programming language as a full stack language? Uh, there are tons of other alternatives available. So basically, uh, what we think about doing things like Swift on the server and writing both your app and your backend in Swift. Uh, so what do you say, Paul? Have you done any server-side Swift yet? I've got a whole book on server-side Swift. Of course John. you do. <laughs> what kind of question was that even? Of course you do. <laughs> the book is called, cunningly, Server-side Swift. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best book on the market. It's the only book on the market. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, and and it, it's, uh, it's interesting because I see people try server-side Swift and imagine they can take all their iOS skills and macOS skills or whatever and put it on the server and hurrah, they can you know make the web team redundant. Um, and it simply isn't the case. Uh, it's actually a, a big cultural shock moving to the web for people. And it's not just apply your Swift skills somewhere else. It's also relearn the things that web people take for granted. Uh, and, and we're used to this concept of once a year, Apple release, you know, dub dub, boom, out comes iOS 12, macOS 10.14, tvOS 12, watchOS 5. And it's a yearly march we're on this step. Whereas in the web, it's weekly or sometimes daily. I mean, the, 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 the scale of changes and improvements, it's more like dog years to human years, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's way, way faster online. And that comes as a shock to people. Oh, that thing you're using uh, you know, last month, two months, three months ago, that's gone now. There's a new thing, and there's a new thing, and there's another new thing, and it's endless. Uh, and just that initial hurdle sinks a lot of people because they're not used to it. They're not prepared for such a fast-moving environment. But at the same time, you know, when you say to uh, people on the web, oh, oh yeah, so here there's a bug in the session code or here the, uh, the no SQL part breaks down or whatever. Um, on, on, on iOS, we, we, we don't have sessions. We don't have, you know, no SQL. We don't have these concepts that are just standard things on the web, even things like cookies, right? Well, no cookies are on the web, but on iOS, you don't have them. So there's quite a big ramp up of things to learn just to get on the web before you even think about Swift. And then, fine, yes, you've got your frameworks that are vaguely stable for the week. You've got your sessions, you've got your database sorted out, you've got your routing done, all these non-Swift things. Then finally, yes, you can use Swift on the server. <laughs> but that's not the biggest concern, sadly, because there's so many other things, that, uh, pieces of jigsaw to put together. Yeah, and uh, yeah, like you say, it's definitely a different realm of, of, of coding and a different mindset you need to have. And when you're when we're building things on the client side, we're like we're usually in this like more isolated like little environment where you know we have our APIs, we have our platform that we're working against, 
You know, sometimes we're complaining that things are not available in earlier versions of iOS or, you know, there's new screen size introduced. But like you say, there's so many more things to think about when it comes to backend development. And it can be a bit intimidating. But I think it's super interesting, even though it is really early days for Swift on the server. And I love that people are exploring this. Uh, I love that there are, you know, great new web frameworks coming out like, you know, Vapor and Katura and all, all of these new new frameworks. Uh, and I think it's really important that we have these like early adopters in this uh, in this field because we're gonna discover a lot of pain points when it comes to Swift as a language, just like, you know, with Swift scripting, you know, there's so many things that can be made better, but the only way for them to get better is for people to actually use it. And I think that's really awesome. So um, I'm really excited about Swift on the server, but yeah, there's definitely things to improve and ways to go. So I think that's important if there's something that you want to get into just to know that, to know that you are an early adopter. Yeah. And that's fine. If, 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 if it works for your project, if you're not building like Facebook <laughs> or something that needs to work at enormous scale, then it might be fine. Absolutely. I, th I think the key thing to keep in mind is when you speak to a, you know, a full-time web developer uh, who's done it for 10 years, you've done iOS for 10 years or whatever, um, they haven't just done React for 10 years or Python for 10 years or PHP for 10 years. They've got a huge, broad variety of experience, nearly always. Um, and what that means is when they approach a web problem, they have a, a, a more native understanding of how it's been solved previously in many different ways and how it might work today. And the best way to visualize this is to think about React native apps that's the same thing in reverse. That's web people try to put their technologies onto onto iOS and macOS and similar. And as a, as developers, you can use a React Native app and think this doesn't feel native. It's not quite right. It's a bit laggy here and there. That control isn't quite right. The animation's not quite right. Whatever. It feels wrong. And the same thing happens when you, as a, a native developer, start doing web coding. Your first attempt, your first you know six months, year, two years. They're just not quite right. They're not the way everyone else would have done them. Uh, and so you've got to reprogram your brain a little bit. Um, so there's a lot to learn there. But I think actually the real win, if it happens, will be WebAssembly, which is incredible. If that, if that actually happens for Swift, it's going to be transformative for languages. Yeah, because then you could actually write front-end uh, web code, like not only your back-end, but you could write like things for the browser in Swift. Exactly. It compiles down to a binary blob, basically, and runs on the client side in place of JavaScript. And if that happens, it means we can write Swift everywhere, on the server, on the client, on native apps, everywhere. And that would be very interesting. Yeah, that would be really cool. So, yeah, I totally think that, you know, if you are in a position where you don't need to churn out something super quickly, uh, you don't need to handle, like, massive scale, you don't need something that is extremely mature and stable, then I definitely think Swift on the server side is something worth exploring, especially if you are very comfortable with it on the client side, because there are really good benefits from using the same language in different contexts. You, you know, you at least you have the language part down, and you can do cool stuff well. like, like <laughs> you can do cool stuff like you reuse your models and you know. Re well. <laughs> yeah, of course, everything comes with caveats. Um, the, the problem is that you're, you're using, you're not using Apple Foundation anymore. Right. You're, you're using the open source reimplementation of Foundation, which is not complete. So there are some things you will take from iOS. You'll say, okay, I'm going to delete all the UI kit code. I'll leave just the, 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 the pure Foundation code. And some bits simply won't work on Linux. Yeah, that's true. They're not implemented yet. 
Yeah. And that, that's, that's a fact of life. It's, not, it's increasingly small. It's shrinking. You know, people like IBM are investing vast amounts of cash to fill those gaps as quickly as possible. Yeah. So it's getting better. But for me, the main appeal to server-side Swift is, you know what? It actually is a lot of fun. Yeah. It's like the, the wild west of Swift right now to see a whole server running off Swift of your code using great libraries like uh, Stencil. It's a, it's a real buzz. It's actually very exciting to code for. Even though I wouldn't ship a website live with it right now, I really enjoy working with it. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great point, and it's a great reason to get into something. I mean, if you wouldn't have gotten into web development at all otherwise, then that's great, you know? There you go. You have an additional realm to explore. Hmm. Awesome. So I think that's all of the questions that we have time for for this episode. So thanks again to everyone who sent in questions and topics and feedback and everything. Uh, really, really awesome. And we'll be sure to save all the questions that we didn't have time for for an upcoming episode. So on the next episode, uh, my guest is going to be Sarush Kanlu, and he is an iOS freelancer, and he's writing a blog at uh, kanlu.com, which is a really, really awesome uh, blog about Swift and iOS development in general. He's also a great conference speaker. So it's going to be really cool to have him on the next episode. I'm his number one fan. He's a, such an exciting speaker to listen to. He's totally psyched by Swift, and that just bleeds through every word he says. He's so exciting to speak to. Yeah, he's totally Don't is. miss the next episode, folks. Don't miss it. It's going to be <laughs> awesome. Even This was good, right? He's way better. <laughs> this was just a warm-up, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly that, yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. All right, so if you have questions uh, for me and Sarush to answer on the next episode, go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast where you can submit your question or just tweet it to at swiftbysundell on Twitter and it'll go into a list and we will make sure to try to answer that question next time. So we've reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, Paul, for joining me on this episode. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and a lot of great discussions, I think. Mm. So if people want to check out all the things that you do, your books, your workshops and everything, where should they go? Hackingwithswift.com. Easy to remember, I think. Yeah, it's a it's a good URL. It's a really good URL. Plus, I'm on, I'm on you know I'm on Twitter. I am two straws. That's T W O straws. I'm on GitHub as two straws. Reddit as two straws. Stack Overflow as two straws. Pretty easy to remember once you remember the two straws part. Right. Yeah. Once you get that down, you can go anywhere. Mm. All right. You can find me on Twitter as well at John Sundell, and you can find everything about this show and the weekly Swift blog at swiftbysundell.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.